Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the things that have formed people with a public voice and how we can get better at engaging with people different from us. And it's also just a chance for me to have a conversation with someone interesting. Every week I interview someone who helps shape our common life, from artists to archbishops, journalists to policymakers, comedians to philosophers, and try and have the kind of deeper conversation that we don't often get. In this episode, I spoke to Rain Wilson. Rain is an actor, comedian, writer, director and producer. He's best known for his role as Dwight Schrute on the American version of The Office. In 2008, he set up the creative agency Soul Pancake, which makes content on a range of platforms that explores life's big questions. We spoke about how he grew up and returned to the Baha'i faith, the existential crisis he experienced after finding fame and riches, why he now believes that creativity is an expression of the divine and his experience of the love of God. This was a lovely one to record, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Rain Wilson, I am going to ask you the uh, enormous and still poorly defined question at the start of the podcast about what you hold sacred. And it's quite a you know, it's a bit of a hefty word. It lands with a bit of a uh, with a bit of a splat um, because we don't use it very often. And I try and let guests uh, define it themselves, um, react to it however they wish. But uh, in, if you want it, be thinking about your deep values or the things that you've tried to live by is often a good starting point. Uh, what comes to mind for you about what you hold sacred? Well, this is interesting. Um, this word is such a loaded word and a difficult word to define. And uh, of course, you're starting with like one of the most profoundly difficult questions, like known to There's humanity. No yeah, yeah, we're just going right in, not just like so. I don't where do were small you born? Talk. No, no. <laughs> um, it's interesting because I've been writing an essay actually for the last. I am not kidding you. The last year and a half, I've been writing an essay on the sacred, and wow. Yeah, and I'm I've been really struggling with it. Um, I have most of it done, but I'm just not fully satisfied with it. So this topic is one that is near and dear to my heart. The The reason that I got thinking about what is sacred is I went on a religious pilgrimage. So I'm a member of the Baha'i faith. My family is Baha'i. And about two years ago, we went on a literal Baha'i pilgrimage to the Baha'i Holy Land in Haifa, Israel, where the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, is buried where the Baha'i World Administrative Centers lie, and where there's a number of historical buildings and houses and places that people lived and walked and breathed and eat and ate back back in the day. We're talking the late 1800s and early 1900s. So when Baha'is pray every day, our call to prayer um, is between noon and sunset, and we say what's called a Baha'i obligatory prayer. And it's a very short prayer. Can I say it for you right now? It's three sentences. Please, I'd love to. Okay. So Baha'is all over the world, between noon and sunset, turn toward this place that we took a pilgrimage to um, uh, in in Haifa, Israel, where Baha'u'llah is buried. And that is the Kibli, the most holy spot for the Baha'is. And we say, I bear witness, O my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. I testify at this moment to my powerlessness and to thy might, to my poverty and to thy wealth, that there is none other God but thee, the help in peril, the self-subsisting. 
So it's this very, very short prayer, and I find it incredibly profound on a number of different levels. But one of the most profound things I find about the prayer is you say what the meaning of life is in the middle of the prayer. Thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. And you're saying that with your heart turned towards the burial place of the prophet, founder, divine teacher of the Baha'i faith halfway across the world. So when you go there, it's incredibly beautiful. And by the way, it's open to all people, not just Baha'is. And it's, it's hundreds of acres and beautiful gardens. And um, you can feel the sacredness in the air of the place. What it, now, what is that? It's quiet, certainly. There's birds. It's hushed. It's very well manicured and and groomed. But those things don't necessarily make something sacred. So you'll even have like Jewish Orthodox family with like 15 kids pouring out of a minivan going to kind of like have a picnic there. And they will, you can see it when they go in, like all of a sudden it's hushed and it's reverent and there's things kind of slow down. Time kind of has a different quality in that place. And for a Baha'i to go to that spot is an incredibly powerful experience. If you've spent your whole life, I mean, I left the Baha'i faith for a super long time, so I'd come back to it relatively recently. So, But if I'd spent a, a many years turning to this spot, imagining this spot, and then you're being in that spot, and then saying that same prayer in the, in that actual spot. I mean, it's very similar to the you know the Muslims uh, doing their pilgrimage to Mecca, and the and the Qibli there, um, the Kaaba. But I was writing this essay about that sacredness. Why why am I here? And I'm just feeling sacredness in every leaf. And I come home and I don't feel sacredness in anything. It's just a lot of stuff. A lot of crap, even in this in this office that you see behind me. It's like, oh, there's this baskets where we put the guinea pigs when we're changing the cage, and here's a here's a here's a surge protector. You know, I got to have a surge protector for my computer and extra chair and a dog blanket on the floor. And not that messiness uh, defines the unsacred, but how do we find that same? How do I? find that same sacredness in my everyday life. Um, it's, not mes- it's not necessarily going to be a place, um, but wh- where is it? Where does it live? How does it live? Did we used to have sacredness in our life more? Did we lose it? But I always hate to have that discussion because you think about like make America great again. Was Amer- When was America great? I don't know when America was fucking great. I don't... I don't know that it was ever great. It was racist and materialistic always. But perhaps there were times when community was held more sacred, when churches were held more sacred, when certain rituals, when maybe nature was held more sacred. Certainly in the Native American traditions, the, the sacredness of nature, of a mountain, of a creek, of a, of a certain lake where gods live, uh, was more sacred. Anyways, I've been talking for a long time. Anyway, so I love this question because it is one of the most profound questions that exists. Oh, thank you. I loved the prayer. Um, I have, obviously, I know a bit about the Baha'i faith. I've been reading around it and I've actually visited those gardens. I think they're extraordinary, but I'd never heard that prayer and it made me a bit 
made me a bit teary. The power of those repeated practices and how they form us. And then, and that brings up rich ritual and the sacred. You know, does does ritual help us get closer to the sacred? I, I think that's a real thread of it. And what part of the answer to your question, I think, from what I've read, is that there is a theory that there was a kind of disenchanting of the world, that uh, a kind of medieval understanding of who we were in relation to the con- cosmos was much more enchanted and a combination of the reformation and the industrial revolution and the enlightenment um c.s lewis has this great line about you know the medieval man would look up to the heavens and see themselves at the bottom of a ladder stretching away into light and mm. that uh our kind of post-enlightenment post-reformation world sees a kind of steel lid on the thing and the mm. and the the materialism or the um you know that uh, that 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 you know the disenchantment of the world is a big thesis in in sociology. But I know lots of my non-religious friends and thinkers really struggle with it because the implication is that you can only be enchanted by the world through religion, and that they would want to say we can find enchantment, we can find the sacred. You know, we can find awe and wonder in the world, and a lot of them are trying to build non-religious rituals and non-religious um, forms in. So I'm really interested in that. I do. I feel the power of the kind of disenchantment thesis um quite strongly but i I know that um it's good to acknowledge people who find that tricky uh so many threads in what you said i want to pick up i try and um kind of locate people in their story a bit so uh we understand that those in public life with public voices all of whom are coming from different places and have different positions and hold different things sacred aren't just their positions that they have been formed by ideas and um had a journey. So I'd love you to tell us a bit about your childhood, if you don't mind, and any particularly kind of dominant ideas that formed you, whether they were religious or political or philosophical, that have helped make you who you are today. Again, just a nice light question. (laughs) (laughs) Getting to know you. Um, So, yes, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I grew up uh, uh, very... uh, poor in a kind of, I guess you would call it hippie bohemian uh, spiritual family. So a lot of the kind of counterculture in the late 60s went to the political. A lot of it went to simply smoking a lot of pot and getting a lot getting laid. Um, my parents were very interested in the political path. And I, I always find it really interesting. And I think younger people don't understand this. They they read about it, they see it in movies a little bit, but they don't understand that from 1966 through 1975, the movement towards alternative forms of spirituality was absolutely tremendous. People were searching, actively searching for some kind of greater meaning in their lives. I think the whole like America Great Again, Eisenhower, crew cut, post-war, pre-Vietnam, you know, Jim Crow... Uh, America crumbled in the mid-late 60s, and in the ashes of American culture, uh, which we realized was racist to its core, unjust, materialistic, militaristic, people all of a sudden opened up their eyes and were like, well, I don't have to just go to my grandpappy's church down the street. I can find alternative spiritual paths. Perhaps there is a spiritual solution to these world problems. 
And the Beatles met with the Maharishi and Cat Stevens became a Muslim and Shirley MacLaine was channeling aliens and even Steve Jobs in the early 70s lived on a Buddhist ashram and went to India. Like the huge figures were taking spiritual journeys. And um, my dad talks about how they would have spiritual gatherings, prayer gatherings at his house and he could go down the street in in Seattle, Washington. This is where I lived in Olympia, Washington, a little town. And he could go down the street, and there'd be a bunch of like hippie guys in fringe jackets and leather vests and and motorcycles or whatever. And he'd be like, "Hey, we're going to have a spiritual gathering at our house tonight, and just talk about the Baha'i faith and other spiritual traditions. Do you want to come?" And the guys would be like, "Yeah, sounds great." So, how, how did he become a Baha'i? He um. You know, I can't really get to the bottom of that story. In the early 60s, so pre-hippie days, he was in downtown Seattle and he met some bohemian. He was wanting to be a painter. He'd moved from suburban Chicago. I don't know why he came to Seattle. It's a complicated story, but he wanted to be a painter. There was a great painter called Mark Toby um, that lived in Seattle. I think he wanted to study under him and he wanted to be an abstract painter like, you know, Jackson Pollock or something like that. And he met... This guy and the guy's like, hey, man, I got to tell you about the Baha'i faith. And he's like, this is the future and it's a spiritual revolution. It's going to change the world. And it's we're all one human family inhabiting this planet. And men and women are equal and we have to fight for racial justice and elimination of extremes of wealth and poverty. And, and he kind of inundated my dad with all this stuff. And my dad was like, OK, whatever, whatever. And my dad said he had a mystical experience. So he was walking across a street in downtown Seattle and literally like halfway across the street, everything kind of stopped. And he was like, oh my God, what that guy said was right. And he's like, I got to look this up. So he got the yellow pages and looked up Baha'i faith, found the very small Baha'i community in, uh, in, in Seattle, went met with the spiritual assembly. So in the Baha'i faith, there's no clergy. There's no priests or rabbis or gurus or anything like that. So, um, he went and met with the locally elected assembly of the Baha'is of Seattle. And he um, brought in, uh, oh, he, and he's like, I want to become a Baha'i. And they were like, well, hold on a second. You can't just become a Baha'i. You can't just walk in here and become a Baha'i. That's, that's not how it works. You have to, what have you read? And he's like, well, I haven't read anything. I just know it's true. And, the, and they're like, no, no, you have to read this. And he, they gave him a whole stack of books. It was actually during the Baha'i fast, which is very similar to Ramadan, where you don't eat from sunup to sundown for a period of time, 19 days. So my dad didn't understand that concept. So he just stopped eating and he just stopped eating for like three days and was reading Baha'i books. And he came back like the next week and was like, okay, I read all the books. And they're like, well, do you understand this, this, and this? And he's like, yes. And they're like, okay, you can be a Baha'i. Of course, it's very different now than it was in 1962 or 63. But so he, he really had this mystical spiritual experience. And that's the household that I grew up in was prayer gatherings and, you know, when Jehovah's Witnesses would come by or Mormons and knock on the door, you know, we would invite them in. Like, come on in, in. have a chat. We'd have a Bible study and we would blow their minds because we'd like talk about, we'd read and studied the Bible, you know, growing up because Baha'is accept Jesus Christ as a, as a Lord and Savior, as a, as a a spiritual divine uh, messenger, the son of God. And 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 yet we also accept Muhammad and and Baha'u'llah and the Buddha. So we would, you know, talk about this these concepts with them. So it was very spiritually rich in a lot of ways. I mean, there was a lot of singing, there was a lot of kumbayaing and studying and prayers. Actual actual kumbayaing. 
Yeah. We would sing- I, I hadn't I just think of that as a, a thing oh. we sung at Girl Guides. Is that an actual spiritual song? We would sing Kumbaya. We would literally sing Kumbaya. And we would sing a, a lot of Baha'i ish songs that were very similar. Um Yeah. And uh yeah, my whole and we would go to Baha'i summer schools and Baha'i winter schools and um and so that was really cool. But I think for me, um, Elizabeth is and I, I wrote a book about my life. Sorry, I don't mean to plug it, but there's if, if people want the the longer story, this is the thumbnail version. It's called The Bassoon King. They can check that out. Sorry for the shameless plug. Um, no, it's good. But um and I write about For you, was it a bit like forgive me for interrupting, I just want to get a sense of how you located it in like was it you talked about you know you don't have to go to your grandpappy's church anymore having your dad be the Baha'i I know a lot of people who grew up in religious families whatever the parents are is a bit like grandpappy's churches it can be a bit like eye rolling and distancing did you have a a genuine kind of connection with the child or were you just doing it because that's what made him happy yeah I had a genuine connection with that as a child However, as a teenager and later in life, when I wanted to be an actor and move to New York City, I wanted nothing to do with my grandpappy's church. You're absolutely right. And in that sense, it was the religion of my parents, which I wanted to turn away from, which I wanted to rebel against and reject um, everything that they stood for, because there was a ton of dysfunction in my family. Um, my dad and my, my stepmom, my mom had left when she when I was two. She took off with some other guy. My, my dad remarried uh, uh, my stepmother, but they didn't love each other. So I grew up in this family where we were literally singing Kumbaya, but there wasn't a lot of love in the family. In fact, there was no love in the family. So it was this weird dichotomy of talking about love, theorizing about love, but not practicing love. So that is very maybe the most emotionally scarring thing to a kid and for, forgive me for people that have been physically or sexually abused or something like that but it's a very specific kind of abuse uh to be uh it's kind of a spiritual abuse in a way to be talking about love and then have a loveless family place so but we would have all the signs of love we would have dinners together and we'd watch tv together and we'd open presents together and holy days and we would, you know what I mean? We would take a walk in the woods together or something like that, but there wasn't a feeling between us. So it was a very crazy, broken thing. So when I left for New York City when I was 19, I just wanted to reject all of that. Yeah. I'm going to come back uh, to the, you know, the loop round of that story, but tell me a bit more about that because we're interested in what draws people into having some kind of public voice into shaping our common life. What was it about acting? What is it about acting? That is a thread that you keep pulling on. Well, um, here's an interesting story. You, are you up for an interesting story? This is a podcast. Always. Okay. <laughs> so when I was a teenager, I started getting interested in acting and I found that I was pretty good at it. Like I would audition and I would get roles and I could like make people laugh and play funny characters and pull faces and whatnot. And my dad was a little bit weird about it. He was always very supportive of me being an artist of some kind. But um, and I played the bassoon in the orchestra and, you know, I was doing various arts and I would draw a lot. Um, but when I started acting, he was a little bit weird and I, I couldn't quite figure it out. He didn't say don't act, but it was it was it was a strange energy. Anyways, I got back in touch with my birth mother when I was about 14 or 15 years old and started to get to know her. I hadn't really seen her between two and 14. And she um, 
she, as, as we got to know each other and I started acting, um, and then uh, when I was a, cut to a, about 20, I finally asked her, like, why did you guys get a divorce specifically? They would only give me generalities. And she said, you mean your dad never told you? And I was like, no. She goes, I was an actress in Seattle doing experimental theater, and I had an affair with the theater director. And I left, oh, I left him for this theater director. And I, my jaw dropped. I had no idea she was an actress. No one had ever told me that my own mom was an actress. No one had ever, that's the kind of dysfunction we're talking about in this family. And no one had talked to me about the fact that she had left for this theater director. I mean, it was very good of my dad because he wasn't like um, piling on her and, and gossiping about her and backbiting and, and whatnot. But um, so then I understood why my dad was really reticent about stuff having to do with the theater. So I would say, why why my voice in the theater i don't know part of part of it is genetic genetic programming i had no idea my my birth mother was an actress and then i just started acting and you know it was one of those kind of like twins separated at birth that both like the cleveland browns and both marry women named jenny you know it's uh uh it's pretty strange but i always loved in the baha'i faith the arts and the sciences and spirituality are very interwoven. They're, they're not separate things. Art is an expression of the divine. So when you create a poem, when you put a, a piece of music into, the, into a room, when you create a beautiful painting, that is emulating the creative impulse of the divine, of the creator, of God himself, of the Lord. Um, and uh, Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of Baha'u'lláh, actually says, that art is the same as prayer. When you kneel in the um, when you put a paintbrush to a to a canvas, it is the same as if you were kneeling in the temple. So going back to the sacred, can the creation of something of artistic or something beautiful be the same as kneeling in the temple? Can that be sacred? Can that be a sacred act? So that kind of always instilled what I did, and I went to NYU, which is a kind of a hippie, crunchy experimental theater school. And in, in its tradition, and it all, and it talked about this, the kind of the, the spiritual ramifications of being an, an actor, an actor as shaman. Uh, shaman is the truth teller, the storyteller, the mystic, you know, talking yeah. about the day's hunt. And that's, yeah. and this is where the people turn to. Uh, yeah. So, you know, fast forward, and I'm playing a stupid character on a dumb American television sitcom, but. Uh, nonetheless, I loved that uh, idea. I, I loved the, uh, uh, the idea that uh, there was a sacred component to the creation of art, to storytelling. So uh, when I rejected yeah. the Baha'i faith, I went whole hog into the world of acting. And I, I kind of was on my same spiritual quest in the theater that I had been as a young Baha'i growing up. Yeah, there's I've, a previous guest um, that we've had on is a guy called Rick Samada, who has got this extraordinary book called I Never Said I Loved You, but was an actor for a long time and has this hilarious section about going to Central. It sounds like it's the equivalent drama school in the UK. He talks about it as a kind of spiritual madrasa where they strip you down and rebuild you. Yep. And there's something about the actor as like sacrifice that you suffer in front of people so they can experience catharsis and you know oh, that, nice. that that sense of almost a priestly role mm -hmm, for actors mm -hmm. is something that I just hadn't really thought about in terms of that what role they're playing in that in our common life. Um, you've talked a lot about 
in that early period of your life being quite, I hope you don't mind me saying, I think you've said it, quite obsessed with status and with money and with some of the more ego related things that go with that craft. Do you think that's, do you think that's difficult to resist in, in some industries more than others, or perhaps just in any industry? Well, it wasn't so much in my earlier part of life. It really was, um, and it wasn't even early in my career. It was kind of mid-career. Let me place that between like 28 and uh, 38 uh, and 40 or some somewhere in there where my higher power became my career. And uh, I wanted more and better and bigger jobs. I was, you know, doing theater and experimental theater, but that wasn't enough. I wanted to be on TV. And then when I was on TV, I wanted to be in films. And I was on films. I wanted to star in films. And I, it just, I got caught up in that kind of like uh, materialistic grasping um, for uh, something outside of myself that would potentially make me happy, uh, that would potentially... Um, soothe my anxiety and my impossibly low self-esteem. So I got definitely pulled into that milieu and I still suffer from it. It's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult to deal with um, the ego. You know, it's interesting. The Baha'i faith has a uh, concept of, uh, of Satan. When Abdul Baha came to the United States, the son of Baha'u'llah came to the United States and spent 239 days traveling around North America in 1912, and when he landed in New York City, a uh, newspaper man asked him, you know, do Baha'is believe in Satan? And Abdu'l-Baha said, yes. And, and, then, and this man said, well, how do you define Satan? And Abdu'l-Baha said, Satan is the insistent self. Wow. So Baha'is don't believe that there's an entity, like an evil guy with red skin somewhere. Um, but we believe that the... Mm, the, the the corollary of that entity is within us and it's the ego it's the insistent self so my entire life has been a battle with this insistent self i think that's what you know and certainly um when you're a actor and a public figure it it highlights it do you know what i mean um Although I've seen, it's amazing how like I've worked in insurance companies and the people were battling with the insistent self. I was a security guard at a college and, and the, among the security guards, there were battles of the insistent self. No matter where you go, there are these ego battles where people are seeking status and increased comfort and, and material goods to help define themselves. We're searching outside of ourselves for something that can never possibly ultimately fulfill us. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to tee up the narrative too much because maybe it wasn't that. But what was it that brought you back to uh, to the religion of your childhood? Um, abject misery. You know, I think with all things, um, it was really uh, I was living a life beyond my wildest dreams in New York City. I never uh, my dad was a kind of a failed painter and science fiction book writer. But I never knew any people that made money from being an artist. So um, the, the thought of a you know poor suburban Seattle kid on all, all my friends' parents were fishermen and construction workers and you know moving to the big city and being an artist and getting money to be an artist. But here I was getting money, not much, but I was getting paychecks to be an actor. That was outrageous. I mean, that was... Uh, preposterous beyond my wildest dreams. So here I was making money as an actor and living in New York City and um, and yet I was really the most unhappy I'd ever been. So I was living 
my dreams and I was miserable. Um, you know, there was some alcohol and drug use stuff that factored into that sex and other things that factored into, um, that kind of desperate, uh, grasping for something outside of myself to try and fulfill my core. But that's when I kind of, after I had rejected the by faith, I kind of stopped for a minute and was kind of like, wait a second here. Did I throw the baby out with the bathwater when I rejected all things having to do with the spirit, with God, with religion, with, um, and that's kind of started me on a quest to rediscover my connection to the divine. And that's what, it was a very slow process. It was seven or eight years of reading spiritual texts and holy books that when I went back to the books of my childhood, when I went, went back to the Baha'i, Baha'i texts. And then, so then I read them on my own. I didn't see them through my parents' eyes. I saw them through my own eyes. Then that's when kind of the, the light went on for me. And it has, it's not like it's been easy once I came back to the Baha'i faith. Like, oh, I came back to the Baha'i faith and all of a sudden I was happy and my life worked out and everything was great. No, 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 no. It was, it's been incredibly, in some most ways, more challenging over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years that I've been actively a Baha'i. Um, but that's an interesting, that part of my journey is very much supported by the Baha'i teachings, which have to do with the independent investigation of truth being a central tenet of the Baha'i faith that we need to find the truth for ourselves. So I needed to go on this path um, to find what was true for me, um, reject the the faith and the history of my parents and find my own way. And what is your lived experience of it now? What What are the ways in which it it shapes your day, it shapes your life, it shapes your decisions. Yeah, that's a great question. And because I, I, um, I'm, I'm trying to write a book, I'm in the throes of beginning writing a book on spirituality, which is very hard for me to do because I keep thinking like, wait, the guy who played Dwight on The Office, the, the idiot <laughs> sitcom actor is writing a book on spirituality. What the hell do you, who the hell do you think you are? But then I was, but people might actually read it. Yeah, that's true. As opposed to, you know, selling 837 copies. <laughs> um, maybe we'll see. But part of that book is a chapter on what I call spiritual life hacks. So a, a life hack, for those who don't know, anyone who's over like 55 is not going to know what life hack means. And you know, I'm right. You know, listeners, um, is a, a, a simple way to make your life better. For instance, uh, to take a post-it note and use it to clean the dust out of the computer keyboard, you know, with the sticky end. That's a, like a life hack, right? So there are spiritual life hacks. And so I'm kind of compiling some of those from all of the world's religions. Um, because I believe at the end of the day that if on a day-by-day -day level, if spirituality spiritual path, a religious faith doesn't make your life better where the rubber meets the road on a daily basis, then don't, don't do it. And I think that's part of why, you know, atheism has caught on so, so well is that we lost track, uh, theists lost track of, wait a minute, how can religion make our lives better, um, on really practical meat and potatoes ways. So, there's a number of ways in which I do. You know, I think that um, I start my day in prayer and meditation. Um, at the end of the day, I review my day and I go, how can I be better the next day? I try and, you know, emulate the great teacher, Père Teilhard de Chardin, 
in his famous quote of, uh, uh, you know, Father uh, Desjardins of, uh, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And this kind of daily reminder that I am a spiritual being having a human experience really helps me put things into perspective. Um, even the teaching I talked talk to you about Satan being the insistent self, I, you can develop a radar for the insistent self. So it's like, oh, is that me or is that my insistent self? Oh, that's my insistent self. Um, that's not me. That's not the core of my divine spirit, you know, seeking to, you know, reflect the 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 sacred and the divine and the beautiful. That's that part of me that's like, well, that guy's an asshole. I wish I could get them. Why didn't they call me about that? Oh, how come he got all that press on that? And I didn't. I want to get that. How come he didn't call me back? And they didn't, didn't, they don't even want, they're not paying me and blah, 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 blah. All of that stuff is the insistent self. And that's our daily, uh, our daily battle with Satan. And, uh, You've used the word the divine, and I sometimes talk about dropping the G-bomb because it feels like asking people about God and their experience of God is, is such an intensely private thing. And, uh, you know, you, you also talked about that God as the unknowable. In Christianity, there's a strain of theology called apophatic, apophatic theology, which is basically that you can't say anything about God, that there is a, a that, which is funny because there's thousands of words written about apophatic theology where you think there would be you know, an empty book. Um, but what... Those crazy if you, if Christians, you can, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you can. You know, you talked about your dad having missed two experience. When you're in meditation or in worship, what... what this is what one of my... I have a couple of atheist friends who this is the thing that they're sort of intrigued by and also slightly repelled by my sense that I can... I, f I feel God. You know, I connect with God. I experience the love of God. What What is... I, I mean, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm struggling to frame the question because it's so private and so I, so. But it away if you like. I know but where, for you, I, what, I know where you're. I know where you're going. Can I just me. can I just take the uh, baton and continue yeah, the race, please? <laughs> yeah, this is the um, this is the great this is the great question. I is my favorite question of all time. I don't have a, a succinct, profound answer, but I will say that if you're a materialist, and I don't mean materialist in like, oh, I want to accrue goods. I mean a materialist, the number two definition in the dictionary, which is that um, all of the world, all of the universe is is simply molecules and energy and, and, and that's all that exists because that's all that can be proven. If you're that kind of materialist, to me, that never made sense because my life experience even when I was an atheist for a period of time and I was an agnostic for a longer period of time, my experience in my body, my experience in my life is to have incredible feelings of love. Like, let's just take my love for my wife, okay? We've had a, we've been together a very long time. We've had our ups and downs. We've, you know, it's been almost divorces and ups and downs and backs and forth, but it's a profound uh, relationship. I, my love for her, my love for my son transcends any kind of like BF Skinner behavioralism of like, oh, I need, of course you have love so that you can form tribes and families and you will protect your family. And then you will, your family will grow and prosper and the race will grow and prosper. My, the way that I experience the love in my body, in my brain stem, in my heart, in, in my nerves is, so much greater than that it's it's 
it it goes down up and down my spine it it causes tears it it is a, it's almost a drug and and i feel that that love it, it it is so much beyond any neurochemical response um you know an atheist can say well no it's not that's just how it works but that's not how i experience it that's not my experience of it so for me, that old hippie adage, I think the hippies were right. God is love, and love is God. The way we know God is how we know love. Do we deeply, deeply know love? Well, then we deeply, deeply know God. It's, it's almost the same as when I'm at a Radiohead concert, and I'm utterly transported by, by the music, and, it's, and it sings in my soul, and I have tears pouring down my face, and my body is moving, and I don't even know why it's moving and that kind of transcendent experience is also God for me. So if, if you define God, if you're repeatedly defining God as some kind of Sistine Chapel old white man with a beard, then of course you're gonna, that's going to fall flat. And if you're going to seek to define God by you know, our very limited st- standards of our five senses, then you're going to fall short. But if you go deep into the experience of love and then equate God with love, beauty, truth— art, music, um, you know, that's where we get a taste, just a taste, an amuse-bouche of, God, of the divine. Yeah. I love that an old hippie adage is also directly from 1 John in the Bible, and I imagine in many other places as well, this sense of an echo or a, a late, light motif or a late motif um, ringing through the universe. Mm, mm. Um I, I could talk to you all day, Rain. Um, I'm going to ask you two more questions. Let's do it. One is, let's do, let's, yeah. let's do a 24-hour oh, podcast and all day. What do you think? Uh, you know what? If someone brings me snacks, I will be fine. I'm just. What about your, you know, someone's so got to raise your kids, though. Yeah, this is true. I can hear them outside on their bikes. <laughs> um, I'm hoping the mic isn't picking up. Um, what, okay, so tell me uh, how hard, it, how easy a decision was it for you to talk about your faith in public? And how do you find navigating those differences? You know, you've talked about talking to atheists. Uh, do you find there's misunderstanding or attack that's difficult or is it life-giving? You know, t- talk to me about that because presumably for, it t- for a long time you were becoming a Baha'i but not talking about it. Yeah, that's been an interesting transition. Um, uh Certainly, I've struggled with something which is like for a long. There's now. There's a lot of for some reason. There's all these kind of famous Baha'i dudes that kind of popped out of the woodwork uh, in America. I don't think they're very well known in in the UK. But this actor Justin Baldoni and the singer Andy Grammer and this uh, other actor Penn Badgley and um and I'm not trying to name drop. I'm really not. I'm just saying that. But for a while. I was like, quote unquote, the famous Baha'i. And it was so funny because I think Baha'is were like, they were really disappointed. They're like, oh, shoot. The most famous Baha'i we have is the guy who played Dwight on The Office, that annoying, nerdy, uh, horrible dweeb. That's the Baha'i. Couldn't we have a beautiful Baha'i who played it? So it's is kind of uh, (laughs) those poor Baha'is. But I did feel a certain responsibility as like, as a well-known Baha'i, as a celebrity Baha'i to, to use my platform to speak about my faith. Um, And I think that's kind of wrongheaded, but at the same time, I love my faith and I want to talk about what I love. I also love Radiohead. I love chess. You know, I love music. I love uh, tennis. I want to talk about, 
what I love. I love the NFL. I love American football and the Seattle Seahawks. I want to talk about what I love. And this is something that I love. And I'm not going to fully be me unless I can speak about what I love unabashedly. And certainly, I'm sure it's cost me jobs. I'm sure half of Hollywood thinks that I'm some weird, you know, nut job. Well, I am kind of a weird nut job, but even more of a weird nut, religious nut job, which is a little off-putting. But but also I will say that, you know, I shot a movie last year in the UK and I found that people in the United States are much more open to these kind of conversations. In the UK, there's, there's a very hard entrenched atheistic tradition that is very severe. I was working with the, on the, this Roger Michelle, the great film director, and he's like, so Rain, you're... You're into spirituality. You're a Baha'i, huh? I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. He's, you believe in God? And I was like, yeah, I believe in God. He's like, I don't believe in God. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah. Yes, I was dragged to church every day, three times a day sometimes. We had to go, and I had to go sing in the choir, and I was a choir boy, and my parents would drag me in, and oh, it was awful. Like, as if those two things were are concurrent, the fact that you were dragged into church every day and the fact I get that it's a reaction to being dragged into church. However, it hasn't been very well thought out. Other than that, maybe listening to a couple of uh, of your famous atheists YouTube uh, videos. So people generally in Hollywood and in other places, like they get it, and people are open to it. You know, the number one spiritual denomination in the United States is spiritual without without being religious. The nuns, you know, and uh, you know they're open to hearing. No one really wants to become a Baha'i, but which is fine. Uh, it's not about conversion, but they're um, but they're open to hearing about you know different spiritual paths. Yeah, that's just such a hilarious impression of so many people that I encounter. Um, I uh, close by asking people what they've learned about engaging across difference. I speak to people from all kinds of religious, non-religious, political perspectives, and one of the reasons people listen, I think, is to hear people they don't agree with and to build empathy. Right on. So either from your tradition or your work what have you learned what's the key thing about engaging uh, in situations of disagreement or difference that might lead to conflict how can we how can we navigate the fact that we're different um, and avoid becoming more deeply divided uh excellent question maybe the most important question of our day I, i'm sorry to be joe baha'i i feel like i'm always like mr baha'i dude but because my faith uh, informs my belief system and my value system, this is perhaps the central teaching of the Baha'i faith, which is unity and diversity. Nowadays, we're all about unity and diversity. In the 1860s, when this was being launched, that did not come close to being to existing in any way, shape, or form. Women were a step above camels, you know. Black people didn't have souls. Um... So the idea of like unity and equality and social justice between races and genders in the in the 19th century was a revolutionary belief system. So I think you know it comes down to a very simple phrase: you you, um, um, you are the the flowers of one garden, the leaves of one tree, um, the fruit of one branch. Humanity is diverse. And in our diversity comes greater love um, that we find strength and unity in diversity. And we'll, we're never going to be, we wouldn't want everyone on the planet to be white Christians or even white and black Christians. Like we, we benefit 
from our diversity. It's like a very, it's the image, the central image in the Baha'i writings is, is of a garden. That a garden is the most beautiful when it has a diverse flowers and plants, you know, all inhabiting the same space and all working together towards to create beauty in that sense. So it's a very, it's a simplistic metaphor, I know, but, um, and this, uh, I do believe that this diversity also includes people that have different belief systems than ours. I think that racism is sometimes a belief system, and obviously that can't be accepted. It has to be challenged. But at the same time, there can be people that are economically conservative and think you need to kind of have be self-determining and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And there's people that think that the state should provide everything for the poor and just give them a salary. And we have to allow for that kind of diversity as well. So I don't have anything profound to say about it, but I think that um, uh, as humanity matures, we are going to need to find this out, that we need people of all different races and creeds and religions and beliefs and genders uh, to accept and love and work together. The hippies were right, Elizabeth. The hippies were right. Rain Wilson, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Okay, been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk. 